0: Hey, Small Fortune listeners. Today, we're talking to Sam Bilbro, who's the founder and owner of Idlewild Wines in Healdsburg. He is a, specializes in Italian varietals, and uh, so this is a very great talk. Uh, very successful fellow. Um, what did you think, Jacqueline, about the interview?
1: He's such an interesting guy, and his story is, you know, steeped in Sonoma County. So that's adds an extra layer of interesting vibe to it. I think.
0: Yeah, definitely. Second, no, yeah, fourth generation, fourth generation uh, The winemaking family. So yeah, no, it's uh, it was it was a fun conversation. The reason I this was actually our fourth interview, but we're releasing it third. Um, Because our first two interviews with Tim Allen and Vic Motto, they both talked about the necessity or recommendation to build a wine brand around not what you like, but what you know that the consumer likes, um, which is, you know, obviously interesting and smart advice. uh, But, you know, that's important unless you don't do that, which is what Sam Sam did. Sam did not do that. Sam built this brand around his personal passion for Italian varietals. And um, you know, he had the, some hunches about why it might work. And he uh was right. He's eight, 10 years in and eight thousand cases of sales. So um he uh the other thing that he said in this interview, which I appreciate and respect, uh was gave a nod to luck in the story of his success and you know, that kind of, uh, I have a great deal of respect for that kind of humility. So, um, hey, everybody, uh, listen to our conversation with Sam and enjoy. All right. Thanks. Sam, thank you so much. It's been so long. I really appreciate you joining us today.
2: (laughs) Happy to be here. Thank you so much, Carol.
0: Yeah, I think you were in the, uh, you were out sampling What What are you seeing out there?
2: Uh I think seeing things starting to come into focus and looking like they're getting ready, it's always a little strange, especially when you've been on a string of uh, drought years to see kind of normal to late year. And, and certain spots are very late. Certain spots are, you know, realistically not really that late at all. But I, I think if you look back 15 years, this isn't that crazy. If you look back the last five years, it feels pretty crazy. But I'm excited. I'm ready to get some wine man. I'm ready to smell fermentations. Um, uh,
0: when do you think you'll start bringing in grapes?
2: I have a couple of things in from some clients that I help make wine for, and then I'll be bringing in grapes of uh, my own for Adderwild, uh likely on Monday or Tuesday of next week.
0: Oh man, so it's on.
2: Yeah, it's on. And usually for us, it's a busy first two weeks, and then we kind of hit cruise control and keep going smooth from there.
0: Okay. Is that because you make so many wines?
2: Um, yeah. So there's a good amount of Roseanne whites, and then also there's a few early season reds that all kind of hit at the same time. And it just makes for a kind of chaotic first little hit. But it's nothing crazy. It's it's fun, honestly. It's kind of fun to kind of be forced into high gear right away rather than twiddling your thumbs. Uh, I'd rather just get the work done away. I know. Yeah.
0: yeah. So, you know, fingers crossed. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> everything continues smooth sailing. Every You know, everybody. I, I felt terrible through Southern Oregon. I mean, they can't get the break. It feels like it's been every year for them. <laughs> mm mm-hmm.
2: absolutely and actually to that point that's the thing that is worrisome in these years i always feel like these years make the best wines for me personally in terms of you know long hang time moderate alcohols high acidities generally these late seasons do that and they're beautiful vintages with the caveat that we open ourselves up for rains for god forbid fires and for all the other things coming into play but assuming they don't it should be pretty tasty
0: done and we i've heard of, you know little mumblings about mildew
2: there was definitely high, high mildew pressure this year with such a high amount of spring rain and then especially in the cooler zones there was a lot of fog throughout the season so there was plenty of mildew pressure in certain spots but not everywhere and then we did get a little rain a minute ago which could have or a week ago i should say which could have easily hit mildew if you're far enough back in in your ripening cycle or it could then become a worry for bunch of rot botrytis, etc Luckily, I work with mostly hillside vineyards that have good airflow, and I've kind of purposely stayed in those spots. I would worry, especially for, you know, valley floor, heavy canopy spots uh, with things like Pinot Noir, Chardonnay. I, I'd worry about that, but I, I luckily am not in that camp.
0: I want to ask you about your brand later. Before that, I wanted to talk about one of the reasons I thought about getting you on the podcast early on is that uh, you and I were talking about a project last year and when the fed started tightening and raising rates and um it's sort of an abstract concept i guess you know you're reading the papers of the feds raising and you know it's going to do this better the other thing in the economy or not because you know who knows it's very strange here as we all know but um you know we were in the middle of this conversation on a project when this rate movement started you know it was like 11 i guess they raised 11 times 60 months and in the middle of that you were like whoa so i just thought it'd be interesting for Listeners to you know kind of see the on the ground thing that happens when the
2: <laughs> when sure, the- sure. You know, yeah. so w- when we were talking about a, a project I was so excited and we went so quickly from I think the besides the rate hikes one of the really interesting things is we went from government spurred high liquidity with SBA loans coming out PPP money coming out and suddenly like us having access to cash for really cheap and There were some rules around how you could use it, but as long as it was involved in your business, you could use it. (laughs) And so it went from thinking, oh, my God, opportunity. And when opportunity is available, if you're, I think, smart in business, you act and you act fast and you look for opportunities. I think that's just part of staying entrepreneurial. And also projects are fun. What was really interesting was to go from that place to over the course of a six month to one year long period when we were talking on the project to it drying up so quickly and then suddenly money costs a lot of money and that's a huge change. And so, you know, what I was looking at was with you was a potential uh, partnership and acquisition and uh, a price point of purchasing where that money went from being, let's just call it, it wasn't this, but let's just call it three times revenue that suddenly became a lot more than three times revenue. When you looked at what the interest was going to be and that happened really quick.
0: Yeah, it really did. The combination, I think, of both the rate rate rising and, you know, we had that little moment with our the banking folks that are very active in, in the wine space. That's really, I mean, it was slow in the first quarter of this year. There were no brand transactions. I've never seen that. <laughs> now, mm-hmm. luckily, and it was, I think, seriously, across the transaction space, everybody was experiencing what you were experiencing with this. Okay, this made sense in the old rate environment, but I don't know if it will in the future environment. And Hopefully, I mean, there's some transactions that have been announced over the last several months or two months, that hopefully that means people are kind of, all right, you know, the feds stopped and, and we can come out of our foxholes and get to work again.
2: Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting on that note, because I think it was in a spot where a small self-funded startup like mine had room to make some moves to suddenly to where I'm not in that situation anymore, which I'm okay with because we're doing great. But, you know, it, it went from having a room as a small startup to now being in the environment where, you know, just last week we had two announcements of Gallo purchasing two very different brands. And I have a feeling now we're we shifted from the moment of a small, wild sized brand trying to move and shake, and now we're going to shift to where it's the big guys consolidating. And, you know, people who have money, they'll start moving in and purchasing because they're not going to be affected like like someone like I am. Right. Uh, and it's going to be really interesting to watch, I think, what happens. I, I think it's going to be a... I'm sure there will be people like my friend Dan Petrosky with Maskin, which was one of the purchases last week, with Gala, who he's thrilled, and I feel really happy for him. But I do think there will be some on the other end of the spectrum where... They're not able to make it. They have to get out. And that's going to be a hard thing to watch. But I think we're going to see that over the next few years.
0: For sure. I mean, people who have large real estate loans, but with rates, they're going to reset. It is definitely going um, to... But, you know, that's, this thing's called small fortune for a reason. Um, yeah. It's hard. It's never... Um, but these kind of inflection points that we're in, uh, you know, I think everybody's just trying to figure out what happens next. And you're right, and the consolidation will continue. But I do think the business is just kind of organic. It's always a tough market. There's always very few buyers and lots of sellers. It, you know, just the main thing to be. But I did enjoy working with right you. <laughs> Even though we get the deal done, um, you have an interesting business mind. Thank you. So tell me I your business, you specialize in Italian varietals. And I uh, wanted to talk about what your business case for you was on that. I know you loved him personally. you know Jim Moore? Do you know Jim Moore? I don't. Jim Moore is a buddy of mine, and he's a winemaker. uh retired now. And he was the guy who founded La Familia di Robert Mondavi. you remember that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. for sure. winemaker. Super into Italian varietal. Then he you know, kind of had his own brand sourcing out of this uh, low lot, called Ubaggio. I mean... Mm-hmm. to um a and then of course there was the Sangiovese <laughs> moment in like the late 90s early 2000s it didn't work out so I'm curious now here it is sort of whatever 20 years later and you've got this successful and growing brand um what was sort of your the business case or you know setting aside your personal company <laughs> business case.
2: yeah so I mean I think because it started as a personal thing there's the first decision that was I'd rather do this and fail but go after a passion and try it. And that was a simple way to just kind of almost subvert the business case if I didn't know if it was gonna work. Okay. Um, but but then the flip from that was that we were at a time and I kind of knew it, but I didn't know it as well as it, as it played out to be, but where there was interest, I just saw growing interest in different varietals. It didn't matter what it was. I couldn't have exactly predicted it, but it was just starting to happen that. People seem to find interest in exploring new riddles, new styles. That was starting in the early 2010s, late 2000s. And it's exploded in the decade since then. And, you know, you're, we're not going to see it on a large scale, but it's, you know, I always think about, I'm not going to compete in the eight. it's the 80-20 rules always. There's the 80% of the market that is what we see in standard reports. It's what we... You know, so by far the majority of gallons produced sell. It's largely owned by a handful of large companies. That's separate. But the 20% I live and work in, it's changed a lot in 10 years. There's so many, like the percentage of less common varietals, whether they're Italian or something else that's in play is huge. And, you know, you go to a wine fest nowadays and it's not uncommon to see grapes that weren't even necessarily grown here over 10 years ago. And maybe they're only in little hundred case lots, but that says something about what the consumer is looking for. Is that they're interested, and they might even have maybe even have heard of those varietals. And so I think what I saw from a business case perspective was a little inkling that that might be happening, and that I could never compete with the ocean of you know high price point Pinot Noir and Chardonnay that was already out there, um, or any other you know, mass produced thing. And so what I could compete with was a little niche market where I might stand out, but I might m- not make a lot, but it would sell due to the luck and timing and kind of a little bit of foresight I had that went from being what I thought was going to be, you know, 500 to a thousand case brand into an 8,000 case brand that's so self-funded and just kind of grown its own accord. Um, and I think that's, it really just comes down to, I think playing, um, almost like playing the margins you know you're looking at where there's room and trying to stay there and then put your head down and, and back to business case put your head down and do the hard work to make it happen
0: yeah but how do your distributors? how does that work in the wholesale markets your, your wholesale is well direct, right
2: yeah i'm currently near, nearly 50 50 now um give or take but uh, which is a great place to be, and feel very lucky for that. Um, but the the wholesale was really interesting. You know, I I did not see this is what I didn't see coming. But the first release I had sold out in California to a distributor that I'm still with, Revel Wine Company, who I really love working with. At the time, they were just a brokerage before they became a proper distributorship, um, and. They sold out the first, you know, 300 cases of Arnace and um, Rosé and um, i trying to even think what other their first release was. They sold that out in two months and it was, there was a thirst, especially in San Francisco at the time. And now it's in LA and now it's all over. I feel like I see it in cities like Atlanta, Georgia, uh, anywhere you go, you see it. If you look for it, there's a thirst for different varietals and, and kind of more diverse selections. And so, yeah, 300 cases first release gone and it was tasting samples with them. And then they sold it all right away. And that was in great restaurants in the city. And then
0: doubled was for
2: 2000, you- 2012 was the vintage 2013 spring 2013 was the first release. And, and then, you know, that was a double in production in 2013 and then launched in New York with, I had five different distributors asking me to come to their books, which doesn't really happen. <laughs> um, and. You know, I think there's part of it that I have a family history in the industry, and uh, it's not a super well-known, you know, name in the industry. You know, I don't have a last last name like Mandavi, but, you know, I'm, I'm fourth generation in this industry, and I think there's that played into it, but I also think it had just tons to do with timing. And there was a thirst for niche, new, different, we don't, like, my distributor back then was already saying... We in New York was already saying we really don't need any more Pinot and Chard, but we need things that are different because we need things that are adjacent. And I was like, well, that's what I do. And that's been pretty fun to watch that happen.
0: Wow, that's fantastic. And I have tasted wine, delicious.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That is lucky that I think they are pretty damn tasty.
0: <laughs> and then um, the other thing that I, I'm sort of curious about is that uh, uh, in addition, if the, you know the wine business isn't tough enough, and you decided to get into importation and then retailing um uh italian food stuff so apart from your personal passion and canned and what was the business case for that one yeah i believe it was like right next door yeah
2: yeah so we opened the tasting room in downtown hillsburg in 2017 at the time you know i, I think this even goes back to business not, not case but approach to business but we started with at the time, we had a sublet on the little tasting room space and a closet and an office, one pallet we could put wine on, and the rest of the building was owned by another company, not in retail wine, or not in wine tastings. And over time took over this whole space as they moved on and then slowly built, you know, head down, build, keep the money coming back in, put your head down, keep building. And then that really was the basis for how we got to the business case for the wine shop next door, which is called Chabrito, is we were doing events based on Italian wines and education and how that being a way to educate our customer base and, and great, great interactions and, you know, connection, which I think is a hugely important part of what goes into wine sales today is customer connection and, 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 and you know, not just like, here's our wine, buy it. It's, it's, why Why do you choose us? You choose us because of all we get to enjoy together. And that creates lifelong customer uh, bases, which honestly are more fun and feel good from my vantage point. It's really nice to go in and see familiar faces and you feel so lucky. They want to support you so much. Um, but out of that, we just realized we had this grouping of people who were thirsty for more. Furthermore, we wanted to do more. And we saw that there were loads of industry professionals who, who didn't have a specialty import shop anywhere locally um we have one large wine shop in santa rosa in sonoma county at the time there was you know grocery stores one large wine shop but there were no longer was a kind of specialized wine shop and food purveyor and so um on a small scale and so we opened based off all that just saw the the niche and the need and knew that we had the customer base built in and so we opened uh italian and somewhat french and sparkling but a large italian focused wine and food shop it's been great and it's just but again it's i think we weren't shooting for like the home run we were shooting for a really good base hit maybe that's another way to describe the business case too back to the beginning is um i think everyone wants the big one but shoot for you know something that's pretty attainable put your head down and win and then you get to second base and then you keep on going and i think that's really a great way to describe kind of how I approached both Idlewild and then Chabruto was get the wins you can get and then keep moving forward as you go. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And do you do like subscription model or anything for the that shop uh, as well? Do you have like yeah, like a,
2: a we, we have, a, we do, we have uh we do have a wine club uh, there, but it's instead of, you know, a traditional, you know, winery wine club, which is, you know, two to four or whatever people do shipments of multiple bottles a year. We do a a much simpler one where it's because it's more localized with this business model. Um, you know, we do two, uh, or three bottles monthly. And then, um, we often do, you know, we'll bring in, we we sell a ton of tin fish, for example. And so if we get a new purveyor and we'll set up a display of here's what's in the wine club and here's the tin fish we think goes great with it. And that's an add on if people want it, but people do, we do the same thing with, you know, with our licensing, we can bring in, um, we have this one burrata producer from Campania in Italy that is not sold anywhere else. We, we get it through a, a cheese distributor we work with. We get it directly imported through them for us. And we have it in the shop within three days of the cows being milked. And wow. it's delicious. And you know, we only are going to bring in 20 of them at a time. But for those 20 customers or more like 10 customers, because everyone buys two, it's something really special. And I sure like to be able to bring one home too.
0: Nice. Yeah, no, it's wonderful. And the, you know, one thing um, I thought I would bring up and ask you about is your experience as far as the, you know, the traffic that you're getting in the, you know, Fieldsburg Plaza area. There's been a lot of sort of chatter that uh, visitations down across the, at least Northern California uh, wine country. Uh, have you seen that experience that or no? Because there's a lot going on at there.
2: We're, Salzburg's pretty busy. I've um, noticed, it seems to me that some of the um, more traditional from what we've seen in the past tourism is down. So, you know, multi day trip tourism where people really spend a lot of time getting out into all the valleys, going to all the wineries, that seems down. Day trip tourism, so, you know, more localized tourism, seems really strong. And that seems to focus more on the towns. Um, so, I see that for us, you know, a lot of people coming up for the day. So from, from what I've heard, hotels are down, but that doesn't necessarily mean restaurants are down. And I think that with wineries, that is the in-town taste rooms or the really close to town taste rooms do well, but a, a slightly further afield taste rooms don't get as much traffic. Um, Cause people just, they're planning their, are they planning a day or are they planning a three-day excursion? Um, and it kind of makes sense, you know, I mean, right now money's a bit tight for a lot of folks, inflation's high, all those things. And, you know a two-person trip to wine country quickly if you're buying wine quickly adds up to four or five thousand dollars that's not insignificant whereas a day trip can be still pretty affordable
0: yeah no that makes sense. yeah i've seen so much going on in quite amazing you um, yeah you're way far away so i'm going get up there and then left but um it, but i was up there over the weekend because i have a project i'm starting after the first of the year and uh I happen to drive by none other than Maryta Sellers. Mm-hmm. So I now know where it is. Um this is your the the winery that your dad founded. And uh he was quite an entrepreneur himself, and a real pioneer as I understand it. You know, he started uh, sold this wine company, you know, dedicated among other things to field um, blends in an old old wine red. Um so um yeah, I, it's a, a lovely area out there. So, and, and you just mentioned fourth generation, so I wasn't aware of that. But but I, I did wonder if being a second generation entrepreneur, winery entrepreneur, you know, you're, I'm sure you, you learned lots of life lessons and winemaking lessons, etc. from him. But I was curious what, you know, what he imparted to you in terms of business advice. That you yeah,
2: that's a great question. So, yeah, fourth generation, but uh, making wine, but... but um... You know, the prior generations, my, my great-grandpa was bootlegging through Prohibition, and then I don't know if that quite counts, and then he did have a legitimate brand after that, but it was really small. So it was really my dad uh, in our family who made the first brand that kind of had lasting power and went for a long time and still going. Um, and I think what he did, I mean, I hate to say it's the same thing as I'm doing, because it was really different, but given it's... Place and time, and where his interest was, it was very similar. And I, you know, I can't help but think I just learned this from him, you know, is see where there's an opening in the market or an opportunity, put your head down, work really hard, don't spend more than you're making. And I think those simple things go so far in any business environment. For him, you know, it wasn't niche Italian varietals, it was affordable table wine. uh, And he saw it through its old you know, based field blends. But really, you know, the way he would describe it was he didn't really understand how in most parts of the world there was this category of table wine that was, you know, a good thing. Yet in the new world, we kind of saw that as jugs on the bottom shelf. And so, you know, as much as he talked about, I remember I'm talking about Gallo-Hardy Burgundy, but what if that was made, you know, with that same idea was made, but as a 750 and with, you know, made to be the greatest version of that, that it could be. And I think that's really what he saw at the time there, there wasn't a spot for it. He would go to accounts and they wouldn't know where to put it on shelves. Um, And so, but that's always where the opportunity is, you know, when they don't, when there isn't a space, but you see the need, put your head down, put your nose to the grindstone, go get on the road, go talk to people. I mean, I, I remember, so comparing it, you know, remember my first sales trip to New York for Idlewild, I didn't have money for a hotel. I stayed in a hostel. I couldn't, I didn't even have money to ship wine out. So I carried it because I could carry a handful of bottles in my bag and I put them on the windowsill in the snow to chill down before going and pouring them. But if you want to make it on your own, you do the work, you find the, the niche or the the or the or niche, I should say, and then you find the your rationale for why you believe in it. And, and those are all the things I feel like I watched him do. And I just tried to find my way to do it myself. And a big one, I think again, and he did this his whole life was, you know, d- keep on investing back in what you're doing, but don't spend more than you're making. Don't get greedy. Don't try to build the big house. Maybe someday you do, but you don't do that early on. You, and you don't—I mean, frankly—don't get a loan so you can pay yourself a big salary. You know, make the money first, then pay yourself a salary. You know, you keep the order of operations right, and then the business is going to function. Yeah.
0: Well, you learned well. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I uh, very much appreciate you doing us today, and some other time too, maybe.
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's it's nice to be on here, and I loved getting to chat about this. It's it's funny, you know. Just to say it so many people in the wine business it we call it the wine business but so few people like really love to get into the business side of it and it's it's really fascinating because you know running the business is hugely important it's i i don't get to make wine if i don't run the business well and so you know i think it's um it's a really fun subject to talk about so i appreciate the opportunity yeah well, thank you for
0: joining us and listen to the podcast. We will hear Vic Motto say the same thing and many others. I mean, I think the folks who know what it takes to see exactly what you and your father understand about it. So, Thanks again for joining.
2: Absolutely. Thank you, Carol.
1: Hi, Small Fortune listeners. If you have any questions or ideas for Carol, Email us at smallfortunepodcast at gmail.com. And we would really love it if you could follow us on your favorite podcast platform and like, review, or share the show. Please join us next time. Thanks.
0: Oh no, it's perfect, no, actually. There's
1: no learning. There's no learning. <laughs> My learning curve is just like flat line. Oh. No curve on the learning curve.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, you know, you have your set of instructions when we're having an interview. I mean, you and I can suffer as much as we need to make this thing work, but we really don't want to um, inconvenience our our interviewees. But you know, mm-hmm. I mean, everybody's been super understanding and really sweet about it, including Sam Bilbro, who That's you guys know, nice got it. Yeah, this was our second interview with Sam because we forgot to push the button,
1: and then. I. Know. I uh, oh, my husband says record on it. And my, every day when I leave for work, my husband says, "Don't forget to record."